0: Welcome to Above Avalon, this is episode 154. Which iPhone is that? Hi, I'm Neil. We are a few days away from Apple unveiling the newest flagship iPhones, and one topic that always gets a lot of attention this time of year is what will Apple call these new iPhones? Consensus has landed on a choice which we will talk about shortly, but in today's episode, I want to talk more broadly about Apple's iPhone naming strategy. In writing this week's article over at AboveAvalon.com, I stopped myself a few times, and I asked a very simple question. Does it matter? Does it matter what Apple calls the new iPhones? Would it impact sales? Are we making too big of a deal about this? And in thinking about the answers to some of those questions, it occurred to me that a product's name is important. I think it says something about the product. It says something about the company and the people who made that product. I think it also became very clear that naming products, especially consumer gadgets that really have a worldwide reach, like the iPhone, is more of an art than a science. You can lose yourself in some of the best business school books out there. I still don't think you're going to get an answer as to what is the best way of naming iPhones. Naming a product, a consumer gadget that has an install base of 930 million people bringing in around $140 billion of revenue per year. We will eventually circle back to this idea of naming iPhones being more of an art than a science. But I think the best place to begin our discussion is to focus on the history behind naming iPhones. Most iPhones have an interesting story when it comes to nomenclature. We start with the original iPhone in 2007. Apple clearly taking a page from its product naming playbook in terms of the prefix i. We could go back to iMac, then of course iPod, Apple simply continued that forward with iPhone. But I think the big story with the original name is Apple choosing to go with phone. They relied heavily on consumers making the mental connection between this quote-unquote breakthrough internet communications device and a traditional cell phone. When we look back at the original iPhone unveiling, I'm sure there were some people who saw that device and instantly said, this is it. This is the future. It's going to change everything. I'm sure Apple had lofty expectations. They knew they likely had something here. Of course, the iPhone went on to exceed those lofty expectations, there's no question. And I think even those who were most bullish on iPhone out of the gate probably couldn't see how influential the product ended up being. The thing is, back in 2007, The masses weren't craving for something like the iPhone. Instead, BlackBerry was getting all the attention. And if you ask people, what do they want out of a smartphone? It probably would be to do email faster and quicker. BlackBerry was satisfying that need. I recall back in 2000, must have been 2009, 2010. I had someone come up to me and they were debating whether to buy an iPhone or not. And they're... Decision really didn't come down to iPhone speed or the lack of a certain feature. They wanted to know were they actually going to use an iPhone enough to justify paying for the data plan that they had to buy? Can you imagine that? This person said, Well, I have a laptop. I have a Blackberry. Why would I need an iPhone? As it turns out, when we look at the iPhone name, It's a bit ironic because the phone part probably is one of the least used aspects of the device. And out of the gate in those early years, the iPhone's weakness was found with the phone capability. Apple went on to use a very similar naming strategy with Apple Watch. We didn't have Apple come up with, well, we have this new Apple whatever for the wrist. It's a watch. It's completely rethought. It adds utility to the wrist. But at the end of the day, it's a watch. The sales pitch is made that much easier when you have consumers making those mental connections between something that they're familiar with. We go ahead to the next year. 2008, iPhone 3G. In retrospect, this may have been the most surprising iPhone name. Apple called the first update of this breakthrough mobile product after an industry term, 3G. I think the decision spoke volumes about what drove iPhone adoption out of the gate. So when you look at people who were actually buying this device, internet speed, the cellular connectivity was a key factor. iPhone 3GS, 2009. This is when things got weird with iPhone nomenclature. As explained by Apple's Phil Schiller at the time, the S in iPhone 3GS stood for speed. The previous year, Apple named the iPhone after faster cellular connectivity. Now you had Apple naming the iPhone after faster processor speed. This is another sign that the key selling point for these early iPhones speed, It was what we now probably view as trivial. Jump ahead a year, iPhone 4, 2010. Apple entered an iPhone naming scheme that would go on to last for a few years. You would have a whole number characterized by a cosmetic redesign followed by an S version the following year with more in the way of internal upgrades. So if we jump ahead one more year, 2011, We had the iPhone 4S, an iPhone 4 with internal improvements. The S cycle provided Apple a few benefits. By sticking with the same overall iPhone design for more than a year, Apple was able to ramp up iPhone production quickly and at a lower price for these S launches. There was another thing found with the S cycle that made a lot of sense. The S-cycle reflected how consumers bought iPhones at the time. In the U.S., mobile carriers subsidized iPhones for $199 with the purchase of two-year contracts. The remaining price of the iPhone was recouped through higher monthly charges for data, text, and service. This resulted in most people being on a two-year upgrade cycle. It almost was inevitable. You buy an iPhone, say, in 2010 your upgrade would be in 2012. I'm sure some of you recall if you were on the whole number upgrade path or the S upgrade path. I personally was on the iPhone S upgrade cycle. So I would buy the iPhone 3GS, iPhone 4S, iPhone 5S. I thought the S upgrade cycle was the better cycle because what would happen is Apple would launch a redesigned iPhone one year. There would be some issues They would correct those issues for the S cycle. Jump ahead to 2012, and we had the iPhone 5. So not too much of a surprise there. I think this is the least noteworthy naming decision. Apple simply followed the existing pattern. You had the iPhone 4, 4S, now you had the iPhone 5. This was the first iPhone to have a 4-inch screen. What would follow iPhone 5 the next year? iPhone 5S. But, Apple faced its first major naming dilemma. What the company had been doing is launching iPhone models and then keeping those models in the line in subsequent years, only at lower prices. That's a smart strategy for expanding your target market because you're making iPhones more accessible from a pricing perspective. This produced an issue in 2013. You would have the iPhone 5 remain in the lineup next to an iPhone 5S. But it would have been very difficult for Apple to lower the iPhone 5's price and still maintain adequate margins. In addition, I think there were some concerns that if you kept the iPhone 5 in the lineup another year, that may start to impact iPhone 5S sales. Because you may have people say, well, you know what? I actually kind of like the iPhone 5. I don't really see a big point and paying more for an iPhone 5S. So in an effort to boost iPhone 5S sales and to maintain iPhone margins, Apple chose to replace the iPhone 5's outer shell with lower-cost, colorful, hard plastic shells. They called this new model the iPhone 5C. And most people presumed that the C stood for color. What ended up happening, though, was pundits looked at the C as standing for cheap. Here you had an iPhone 5C next to a higher-priced, and what many considered a higher-end, iPhone 5S. In 2014, iPhone 6 and 6 Plus, for the first time, Apple introduced two new flagship iPhones at the same time, one with a 4.7-inch screen, the other with a 5.5-inch screen. Apple went with the Plus to denote the model with the larger screen. I think the name worked as there was no other major difference between the two iPhone models aside from screen size. And the larger model had a better battery life because you could fit a larger battery. But the the primary difference was screen size. And so I think going with Plus versus, say, Pro, I think it was the right choice. And I think most people actually agreed with Apple. There really wasn't too much pushback with that original Plus iPhone. Jump ahead a year, and we had the iPhone 6S and 6S Plus. So again, from a naming scheme, not too surprising, you still had Apple following this S cycle. The thing is, when you looked at product development, I think the S cycle began to lose much of its meaning. Because what was happening was the market started to look at S years as refinement years. They weren't looked at as that big of a deal. They were looked at as more, oh, this is the boring update. But when you look at actually what Apple was doing from a product development standpoint, sometimes the S years were more interesting, more noteworthy than the whole number years. I think this is right around where Apple began to shift iPhone development so that every iPhone contained a handful of useful new technologies and features. If we went a few more months from that 6S, 6S Plus launch, we had the iPhone SE. Apple introduced a new model containing components from a few prior flagship iPhones in March 2016. The SE stood for Special Edition. I thought the iPhone SE was such a fascinating product. You had some people say that it represented a seismic shift. An iPhone strategy. I'm not so sure about that. I think the iPhone SE ended up being a bet on four inch screens. It was a byproduct of Apple's screen size differentiation strategy. And so the iPhone SE was given a very specific mission entice a portion of iPhone users to upgrade to newer hardware. At the time, there were probably around 250 million iPhone users. They were using a small screen iPhone. At the same time, you had Apple launching all these larger iPhone screens. And some people said, no, I don't want those larger screens. I like being able to use a phone in one hand. So what did Apple do? They used a 4-inch iPhone. at a 4-year-old design. They put some newer components. And they looked at it as a special opportunistic bet. SE Special Edition. Interestingly enough, Apple finds itself almost in the same exact situation in 2019. There are rumors that Apple is going to launch an updated iPhone SE. I don't think the bet on that would be on foreign screens. I think we are past that at this point. But it's probably going to be a bet on a smaller screen iPhone at a time when iPhone screens are getting larger and larger. In 2016, we had the iPhone 7 and 7 Plus, very similar to the iPhone 5. This was an uneventful year for iPhone naming. It was just a logical choice. And then this takes us to 2017. This is where iPhone naming starts to get really interesting. We had iPhone 10. Then we had 8 and 8 Plus as well. In my view, this is when iPhone naming seemed to cross the point of no return. Apple decided to call the first iPhone lacking a front-facing home button, something that had been rumored for years, iPhone 10, using the Roman numeral X. For iPhone 8 and 8 Plus, Apple really should have probably called them 7S, 7S Plus. They didn't. Instead, they skipped it. They went to eight, eight plus. Why? Apple wanted those new models to be perceived as more advanced than what may have been implied if they went with an S nomenclature. 2018, we had the iPhone 10s, 10s Max, and 10R. Last year's flagships were the most confusing from an iPhone naming perspective. Apple followed three general guidelines. Apple reverted back to the S playbook. So I don't think a lot of people thought twice about calling it XS or 10s Max. The thing is, I think they went with S just because they liked that original iPhone X branding. And so they didn't want to move past it. They didn't want to call everything iPhone 11 or name it something else. So they said, let's just keep the iPhone 10, the iPhone Um, X, as most people call it. Let's keep that branding just another year. Let's put an S at the end. Apple used Max to distinguish the larger iPhone model from its smaller sibling. And the third thing was that Apple used the letter R for the lower cost alternative to the two iPhone XS flagships. According to Phil Schiller, the R didn't really stand for anything. Although some thought it stood for that model having a retina display, while the S stood for super retina. Schiller actually went on to mention that the letters R and S are used in the auto industry to highlight special models. And I think this actually reiterates the point that I was making with Apple using S and iPhone 10s. I don't think it was because of the traditional reason, as in, oh, well, this is the refinement year after a major year. Instead, I think they just wanted to have iPhones with the letters S and R in them. (laughs) It sounds pretty simplistic, but as we will talk about shortly, I wouldn't discount that. Now we turn to the 2019 Lineup. Given Apple's decision to go with iPhone X naming in 2017 and 2018, there aren't too many logical paths that iPhone naming could follow now, unless Apple wants to try something completely new. I think there are two obvious choices. They could continue using Roman numerals. So you would have iPhone XI pronounced from Apple's perspective as iPhone 11, but everyone would call it iPhone XI. I think Roman numerals work if Apple was selling one flagship model. However, things get really confusing when you have three flagships. What would Apple do? Are you going to have a XI Max, an XIR? I don't think those are as powerful as iPhone 10. The other obvious choice is iPhone 11. It's a much simpler naming track. I think it makes more sense for Apple to use 11 versus 12, as the implication is that these new iPhones are the follow-ups to the iPhone ten series. There is a history of Apple skipping whole numbers altogether. There wasn't an iPhone 2. There wasn't an iPhone 9. But I do think iPhone 11 seems to be a little bit more logical than iPhone 12. The latest rumors point to Apple unveiling three new iPhones next week. You're going to have an iPhone 11, that would be the successor to the iPhone XR, and you would have an iPhone 11 Pro, and this would be the successor to iPhone XS. The debate is found with what happens to that largest iPhone model, the iPhone XS Max. Does Apple simply call it iPhone 11 Pro as well? Or do they call it iPhone 11 Pro Max? The first thing that came to mind when I heard these names is that Apple would want to use Pro to draw attention to the differentiation between the two high-end flagship models and that lowest cost flagship. Apple isn't using Pro here to say, well, only professionals are going to go for the high-end iPhones and consumers are going to go with the iPhone 11. That type of thinking died years ago. When we moved into the mobile era, the line between consumer and professional from a device perspective, it went away. You have consumers going with iPad Pros. You have professionals, whatever that means. I think that entire term has been completely watered down at this point. You have quote-unquote professionals buying iPad minis. In fact, the iPad Mini, I think, is still around because of its enterprise use cases. I think we can go further and say even this pro-consumer debate, it doesn't even work with the Mac anymore. Is the Mac Pro or the iMac Pro just for quote-unquote professionals? What if I just simply like to do use cases that require a machine like the iMac Pro? This just goes back to reiterate how the term professional, it just doesn't mean the same thing that it meant 10, 15, 20 years ago. So when it comes to these new iPhones and naming them, I think the big question at this point is, do you see Apple using Macs to denote the model with the largest screen? Part of me wonders if it even matters when you go to Apple's website, you go to the iPhone page. Up top at the navigation bar, the choices are 10S and 10R. Only when you go into iPhone 10S do you then get the option between okay, do you want iPhone 10S, the smaller one, or iPhone 10S Max. I think Apple can follow the same strategy with these new iPhones. So it'll be iPhone 11 or iPhone 11 Pro. Only then, when you dive into iPhone 11 Pro, do you then get the options. Do they go with screen size to denote? Do they use Macs? We'll find out in a couple of days. So, that's the history of iPhone naming. My biggest takeaway, my biggest observation from all of this is naming iPhones is more art than science. When I was in college, I went to the University of Connecticut. One of the classes that really stood out to me was art history. And the only reason I was able to take that course was because I switched from the School of Engineering to the School of Business. Long story short, I started out as a mechanical engineer. I then switched to a major that's called Management and Engineering for Manufacturing. And one way I describe that is envision a company with a huge factory, it's empty. On one end, you have trucks bringing in raw material. On the other end, you have trucks that are waiting for that finished product to to be shipped. How do you set up the factory? And what UConn was finding was that companies wanted engineers with more of a business background. So Management Engineering for Manufacturing, shortened as MEM, combined the two. You would be taking Vector Mechanics, Right next to accounting. And what I found out was that I really liked accounting. (laughs) Most people in my class are the complete opposite. They wanted to take uh, multivariable calculus over basic accounting, which I don't quite understand that. But in my situation, I had taken so many engineering classes that I now had time to take some electives. So I took French, which was not easy for me, but I took art history. And I loved it. I thought it was such an interesting class because the teacher would basically pull up a slide and we would just talk about it for the entire class. In some ways, I almost get the same feeling when you talk about product naming, especially for something like the iPhone, where we're not really talking about right or wrong, but we're talking about what do some of these names Tell us about the people making this product? What does it tell us about Apple? For example, you have the R in iPhone XR. Why did Apple go with R? I mean they said, well, it's it's popular in the auto industry. I think they chose that just because it looked and sounded better than other letters. Apple's decision to go with 10X. I think it was heavily based on marketing. It looks cool. It's powerful from a branding perspective. And I think that matches what Apple really thought about that product in terms of it representing the next 10 years for iPhone, the next era for iPhone changes. And this is why when I asked myself, does it matter what Apple actually calls the new iPhones? I think it does, because I think in some ways it tells us a little bit about product development. It gives us those clues, and this is where we start thinking about the future. Where can iPhone naming go from here? When I think of iPhone nomenclature, I think it's losing some of its usefulness. It's losing some of its utility. You have consumers routinely mispronouncing or misidentifying iPhone names. It's easy to see why. iPhone XS Max doesn't exactly roll off one's tongue. The title for this podcast originates from the fact that a growing number of iPhone users, they don't know which iPhone they have. And they certainly don't know which iPhone you're probably using add cases to them, you really can't tell which iPhone you're using. People are increasingly saying the new iPhone or the big iPhone when referring to the latest flagships. Based on my calculations regarding the iPhone upgrade cycle, the next marginal iPhone buyer will likely hold on to his or her iPhone for a little over four years before upgrading. I'm able to reach that estimate from a model that I maintain where I track when people buy their first new iPhone from either Apple or a third-party retailer. How do I know even that? Well, Apple provided clues over the years as to the percentage of iPhone sales that went to new users, upgraders. Knowing the difference, you're able to actually back into pretty good estimates for how the amount of new users changed from year to year and when you segment all of the numbers by year you can then estimate different upgrade cycles so maybe if you bought a new iphone 2008 you were among the early adopters maybe you're buying iphones differently than someone buying their first iphone from apple in 2019 When you put all of the numbers together, you'll see that people are not upgrading their iPhones like they used to. That's not exactly a new revelation. I've been talking about it for years. Apple is coming to grips with it as well. I think they're a little bit more comfortable talking about it these days. And when you add the gray market into this discussion, and that's people who are using iPhones that were either passed down or resold, I think a very similar dynamic happens as well. Those um, people are not upgrading their iPhones as often either. As the iPhone upgrade cycle continues to extend, the case for coming up with new iPhone naming every year declines. And I think there are subtle clues that suggest we may be approaching the point when Apple does away with the annual iPhone naming cadence altogether. Apple wouldn't just go with iPhone. They still need a way to distinguish iPhone models with different sizes and capabilities. Instead, I think Apple would embrace a strategy that includes iPhone, iPhone Pro, and iPhone Mini. Whenever I talk about iPhone naming, I always get some people who say, well, they should have done that years ago. I don't know why they're dragging their feet on this. Well, maybe that's true. The way I look at it is there have been two very good reasons for using an annual cadence for iPhone naming. The first is that, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, Apple had been following a strategy, they still are following a strategy, where they launch a new iPhone, and then they keep it in the line for two maybe three years, at a lower price. And this is meant to make the iPhone more accessible. And in certain countries, emerging markets, you actually have Apple continue to sell even older iPhones at even lower prices. Without naming each iPhone a little bit different, depending on the year, that could get somewhat confusing. Because you would say, I want an iPhone, and then you go, well, which one? Do you have the 2018, 17, 16, 14? It kind of would be like cars, but I don't think that really works terribly well. Most people, when they buy cars, they usually go by price and mileage. They don't really ask for a certain gear for a car model, and that's it. The second factor that, I think has supported this idea of an annual naming cadence, and I would admit this may be a little bit obtuse, is that products that are updated on a very consistent schedule each year, I think they match with this idea of each one getting a new name. So when you look at the iPhone, it's updated like clockwork every single September, almost to the exact week every year. And even though the upgrade cycle is getting longer, I still think you have a portion of the iPhone base that buys that new iPhone at launch. The thing is, that factor and also the first factor regarding keeping iPhones in the line for a number of years, I think they're starting to break apart. One thing that Apple can do to reduce this need of keeping iPhones in the lineup only at lower prices, It's just simply sell more flagship iPhone models. If Apple moves from having three flagship iPhone models to something like four or five, they can address a wider range of prices. And so let's say this rumor of an updated iPhone SE verifies. I think we can all agree that's probably going to be priced at a lower point than what the iPhone 11 is going to be priced at. I think that's going to reduce the need for keeping older iPhones around at lower prices. As it stands now, those older models, they don't represent a majority of iPhone sales. Historically, it's been assumed that older models represent about 30% of total iPhone sales. There were rumors a few months ago that Older iPhone models were seeing a surge in popularity because people weren't liking the flagship iPhones. I'm not so sure about that. I think a lot of those rumors just really had to do with the difference between reality and expectations. I think Apple was expecting older iPhone sales to go down quicker than they actually were. The other thing to consider, and this is essential when we're talking about iPhone pricing strategy, the gray market. The gray market can serve, can fulfill the demand for lower-priced iPhones. Apple does not need to sell a quote-unquote cheap iPhone themselves. Instead, as people hand in their iPhones, you're going to be able to put those into the gray market, recirculate them, cut the price, and they could find a new owner. The iPhone upgrade program, that is a a clear feeder right into the gray market. You are getting gently used one-year-old iPhones. Honestly, you could probably get three, maybe even four owners over that lifespan. Replace the battery. If you have to do other things, those iPhones could keep on going. Increase the number of flagships. It reduces the need for keeping models in the lineup. Simplifies the lineup. And I think it supports this view of moving away from an annual naming cadence. As for this factor of updating iPhones at the same time each year, this may seem crazy to think about, but I think we're moving to a point where eventually this September product event that Apple puts on, it's not going to be known as an iPhone event. It's going to be known as a wearables event. You're going to have Apple Watch updates. Wireless AirPod updates. Apple Glasses updates. Yeah, we're going to have to wait a few years for that to happen. I think that's what's going to happen. I mean, I look at what's going on the past couple years. I take a look at the demo rooms at these September events. The tone is changing. It is very clear. Two, three years ago, the Apple Watch tables... You could easily have gone and check out the new watches. (laughs) You didn't have to fight your way through cameras and people doing interviews or doing live shots. Last year at Steve Jobs Theater, those Apple Watch tables, it was like mayhem. Now, granted, there was a huge update. People wanted to see them. But I think it really told us that they're just different product categories. The iPhone's mature. The updates from year to year, they're just not as noteworthy as they used to be, especially if you are a tech writer or a journalist. Meanwhile, with Apple Watch, we're seeing adoption go through the roof here. Each update matters because it's expanding adoption. Carry this exercise forward a couple years. What if we introduce a range of, Of wireless headphones from Apple. First party headphones. So these are Apple branded headphones. Talking about Apple glasses. Annual updates. The iPhone is going to be like the iPad or Mac of today. You may still have dedicated events. To talk about new iPhones. Look at how Apple has dedicated iPad and Mac events. Instead, what's key here is that Apple can embrace an update schedule that spreads out iPhone updates. You don't have to do everything in September. If an update's ready to go in March, push it out. We did see the iPhone SE, after all. So this is not really rocking the boat too much. Maybe we see this with an updated iPhone SE next year, in 2020. You'll see Apple do it outside of that September launch. So when we think about Apple embracing this brand new naming strategy where it's just iPhone Pro, iPhone, iPhone Mini, I think 2021 may be a good bet for the earliest point when Apple embraces this new nomenclature. Consider the following. By 2021, Pro will have likely been used in iPhone naming for two years. We have these rumors of an updated iPhone SE in 2020. I think one can make a pretty convincing argument to come out with a new flagship iPhone that has a slightly smaller screen than the flagships we currently see. If you're including an updated iPhone SE in the iPhone line, I also think it becomes a little bit easier to see what model would be called what. A smaller form factor seems to fit with the idea of an iPhone mini. I don't think you just give that to the lowest price. Meanwhile, Apple could actually go a little bit larger in screen size, just a little bit before I think you're reaching a limit. But if you go a little bit higher at the high end, it becomes even more clear what the iPhone Pro would be. And then in the middle, the item that probably would appeal to the mass market the model that would get the most sales, you would have iPhone. And then the third reason, in the event that Apple plans on sticking with whole numbers for iPhone naming, the 2021 iPhones would potentially be called iPhone 13, one of the more superstitious numbers in existence. So I think that would give Apple a great time to say, okay, we are done with these numbers. We are going to move to a different iPhone naming strategy. When looking at the overall picture, it's difficult to say if Apple's iPhone naming strategy has had a negative impact on iPhone sales. The iPhone business is being impacted by a number of developments. We have a longer upgrade cycle as people become content with what they currently have. Apple no longer has a tailwind from bringing iPhone to additional mobile carriers around the world, and there are fewer large pockets of premium Android users, or essentially premium smartphone users, that are a prime target for iPhone. With all those reasons, it's doubtful that a particular letter or a number in the iPhone name would entice users to upgrade in mass to a certain iPhone model. I think we're beyond that point. I also think the same can be said about any one feature a better camera, 5G. It's increasingly difficult to see anything like that leading to a surge in upgrades. Instead, iPhone naming continues to be intriguing because it tells us a little bit about Apple. It tells us about the people behind the product, the clarity that may or may not be found in product development. In essence, it provides us a little window in which we can see how Apple is thinking about the world. That's going to do it for today's episode. I did want to go over one quick programming alert. Given Apple's upcoming event at Steve Jobs Theater, I recently published my event preview. This centers around my thoughts heading into the event. I also put into context what has been a pretty good number of rumors and apparent leaks. Following Apple's event next week, I will then publish my review. So I'll go over what I think are the major themes, the things that really jumped out at me, And I also share my full notes. Both the preview and event review are available exclusively to Above Avalon members. They will be sent via email. So if you're interested in receiving those items, all you have to do is become an Above Avalon member. Head on over to AboveAvalon.com and then go to the membership page. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month or $200 per year. The cornerstone of membership is access to my daily email all about Apple. These emails are 2,000 words and typically covers three stories. The membership page also includes additional information on all of the other benefits and privileges found with membership. One example is that there's an archive. so You can go back and read previously sent daily updates. I believe there's 820 or more daily updates available. That's also how you can go back and read the event preview that I sent out a few days ago. If you enjoy the analysis and perspective found in this podcast and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com, I think you will find a lot of value in becoming an Above Avalon member. I am proud to say that Above Avalon is fully sustained by memberships. Thank you for those of you who are currently Above Avalon members and thank you in advance if you're thinking about becoming an Above Avalon member. Last but certainly not least, if you enjoyed the Above Avalon podcast, if you can leave a rating or review for the podcast in Apple's podcast app, I would greatly appreciate it. Once on the Above Avalon page, all you have to do is scroll all the way down towards the bottom, you'll see a spot to leave a rating or review. And of course, if you enjoy these podcast episodes, if you can share the episode, let others know about Above Avalon. It's always interesting when someone reaches out to me saying that they discovered Above Avalon via this podcast and not through AboveAvalon.com. I always get a kick out of that. That's going to do it for today's episode. I will talk to you all later. Bye.